Welcome back to the program. When we hear the word or hear about nonprofits, we often think about organizations that seem like they're fighting the oncoming wave to try and do good. Often with noble purpose, sometimes the mission seems too big, the emotional pull too intense, or success too fleeting. But today all of that is changing. We have a whole new group of organizations, perhaps the Gates Foundation being the penultimate example, that look to the ideas in the for-profit world to try and achieve their success. They realize the importance of scale, marketing, transparency, and real results. They are, as my guest Adam Braun calls them, for-purpose organizations. Adam is the founder and the leader of one of those, Pencils of Promise. He's built more than 250 schools around the world. More than that, though, his efforts are a model of how we can all make the world a better place, one pencil at a time. Adam now tells a story in a new book, The Promise of a Pencil, and it is my pleasure to welcome Adam Braun to the program today to talk about The Promise of a Pencil, How an Ordinary Person Can Create Extraordinary Change. Adam Braun, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Great to have you here. You were on the fast track to a Wall Street career when you got a bit sidetracked along the way. Yeah, yeah. So I was um, basically committed to work on Wall Street for as long as I can remember. I started trading basketball cards when I was a kid, and one of my coaches eventually pulled me aside and explained to me that he did that for a living. It was just called picking stocks. And so I was, uh, I don't know, just a competitive athlete, but at the same time, I loved math, and the intersection seemed to be working on Wall Street. And so when I was 13, I opened an E-Trade account. When I was 16, I started working on a hedge fund. When I was 19, I was at a fund of funds and uh, was uh, really just excited about becoming an investment banker. But the issue was the only thing I was motivated by was accumulation of wealth. I just, I wanted to be as rich as possible because I thought that uh, that would make me happy one day. And then when I was 21, I went uh, backpacking for the first time through the developing world. And I found myself in India, uh, where the depth of poverty was just beyond anything I had ever imagined, and I found a boy begging on the streets, and I asked him, if you could have anything in the world, what would you want? And his answer was a pencil. Not a house, not a car, not a boat, the things I expected, but just simply a pencil. And so uh, I gave him my pencil, he just lit up, and I realized this boy had never been to school before, that he had had no access to any form of quality education, which is the one thing that lifted my family uh, as Holocaust survivors out of poverty over several generations. And so... I just became really committed to um, helping create a world in which every child had access to quality education. But my background was not one of, quote, nonprofits. I'd always kind of been an entrepreneur. I had obviously had financial experience. And out of college, I worked at Bain & Company, one of the leading consulting firms in, in the world. And so uh, when I was uh, about to turn 25, I went to the bank, had this idea to try and build one school using uh, what I called a, a for-purpose approach, not nonprofit, not for-profit, but you know, a nonprofit by tax status, but driven by the same principles that build the world's um, greatest companies. And so I uh, put $25 in a bank account, uh, hoping to build that first school and dedicate it to my grandmother, who was turning 80. And uh, here we are almost five years later with more than 200 schools and over 20,000 students uh, in our programs around the world. Talk a little bit about this foundational idea of for-purpose, that nonprofit as a phrase, as a definition was something that, in your view, had been tainted in some way because it really was it was a negative. Exactly. I mean, the, the, the way that I view it is, is a couple things. The first is, I've never met anyone in my life who wakes up in the morning and says, I cannot wait to not profit today. Nobody. <laughs> and so it made no sense to me that we would use this term. And I talk about in the book where I was on a kind of 
a rooftop gathering in Manhattan, and I was speaking to this uh, venture capitalist, and because that was my old industry, I really understand the language, and I, I speak in that kind of conversant um, language as well. And so you know, we're having this great conversation. About 20 minutes in, he says, what do you do? And I, I said, well, I, I run a nonprofit. And his eyes just kind of glazed over, and he looked for someone else to speak to right away. And I realized that there was something in this phrase that strips our work of its power, of its value, and really of its dignity, because the word non, if you look it up in the dictionary, really means worthless. And for some reason, it's the only industry that defines itself by what it isn't. Um, you know, I've given the example a lot. I would never meet someone who works at Delta or American Airlines and say to them, oh, so you work in the non-automobile industry. It would just make no sense. And yet we work in a space that does that all day, every day. And so I just thought, why don't we speak about what we are doing and why we are working in this space. And there's really two reasons that, that anyone works in that space, in my opinion. The first is to uh, lift others out of poverty through profitability, to bring greater profitability into the lives of others. And then the second is to increase the sense of meaning and purpose in your own and uh, follow some sense of a, a commitment to service to others. And so I said, you know, instead of calling this nonprofit, let's just refer to the work as for a purpose. And the first time that I shared it was on stage at the Google Zeitgeist Conference. And you know, this is to a, a room of about 400 or 500 leaders in the business space. And there was this kind of audible gasp. I wasn't sure if that was a good thing or a bad thing, but what I've come to realize since is that it was a sense of recognition, that the people in the room heard something that they related to. And it's, I've been blown away by the fact that not only have you know, a tremendous amount of nonprofits adopted this idea and this ideology, but that um, the business community really loves it as well, and that they want to work with organizations that are driven by the same principles, return on investment, um, you know, not viewing this as a one-way street where we work with people that are poor, so pity us, but we're going to provide value. We're going to help you achieve your goals, and in the process, you're going to help us achieve ours. Uh, and so it drives uh, every single decision that we make at Pencils of Promise, and I think it's really um, a large component that led to our success. And it was also bringing in business elements, as, as you talk yeah. about, things like being able to scale up, being able to have transparency, and most of all, having real metrics to measure results. Completely, completely. I mean, you know, from, from my background in, in finance, I, I, I've never really been driven by beautiful photos um, or nice um, storytelling motivates people. But at the end of the day, you could never raise a fund and then go out to individuals and say, look at these beautiful photos of our staff and look at how nice our office is. And guess what? We raised uh, $15 million. People would ask one simple question, which is, what, what are, what's the data? What's the results of your work? Uh, is your fund performing up or down? And yet in the nonprofit space, that question is rarely asked. You know, we just speak about how many lives we've touched or, um, you know, send people really compelling stories. But we don't provide an honest assessment of whether the programs are working or not, whether the money is being used efficiently, and even more so, acknowledging our failures and then iterating based on them. And so uh, at Pencil of Promise, you know, we're really committed to one, building a beautiful brand that resonates with people, and that's, I think, attracted a lot of our, our supporters. But what keeps them with the organization is not just the passion, it's the commitment to results. Talk a little bit about how young people have responded to this, because it is a different model and one that has yeah. gotten a much greater reception among millennials in particular. Yeah, completely. So when I started um, put, you know, putting $25 in a bank account, I didn't go out as my mentors advised me and find five people to give me $50,000 and have you know, 250 grand in startup capital, which is what everyone told me to do initially. 
I wanted to invert the traditional model and start by getting young people involved in small contributions. So 98% of our donations in our first two fiscal years, 08 and 09, were in amounts of $100 or less from people in their teens and 20s. So we were truly a grassroots movement, but the way that that happened was through digital and social media. So I was Mark Zuckerberg's year in college. When he was a sophomore in, uh, in, at Harvard in the class of 2006, I was a sophomore at Brown. So we were basically the early testers for Facebook and all of the, the waves of, of social media platforms. And so, I mean, I'm a millennial, and, and I think when my generation looks at the legacy that they want to leave behind, it, it, it's one undoubtedly that improves the world in some capacity. And what we've come to recognize is that you can do that through business. Uh, you can do that through your everyday activities. And as I've shared a lot, I just think that the distinction between profit and purpose is, is a graying line. Whereas before, you, know, you had your career, you made a, as much money as you could, and then once you passed away, you left that money to either something that improved the world or your next generation. And what we're seeing with millennials is they want to see the results in their lifetime. They want to feel a direct connection to it, and they want to derive a sense of meaning from their contributions. And so they demand transparency. They don't just want to give to an organization that's kind of a black box. They, they want to know exactly what their money is touching. And so as part of that, we said to the general public, anyone that donates any uh, dollar amount on our website, 100% of that will go directly into our programs, uh, whether it's school building, teacher training, or student scholarships. And that was one of the first things we committed to. And we're able to do that because we raise enough money off of events and private contributions and people who say, I just believe in you guys as a leadership team or you know, as a staff, use my money as you see fit, that we're able to guarantee anyone that they contributes online that all of their funds go directly to programs. One of the interesting contradictions in all of this work is that oftentimes it is emotion that drives contribution and drives participation. Yep. But part of the effort in doing what you do in this kind of for-purpose world is to, in some ways, tease some of the emotion out. Well, I, I think you have to understand the audience, and you have to have a... a, a solid understanding of almost the science behind it. So one of the things that I find really compelling is that if you want an individual um, to make conclusions, you show them data. You, you activate their rational mind. If you want an individual to commit to action, you show them story and you compel their emotional side. And so what we want to do is, is actually both. But it's more important on a first experience with our organization to, to lead to action, um, which is, you know, telling an emotional story, providing photos or videos or transparency into the work, and getting people to make their initial contribution. Um, and what will happen is after you make an initial contribution, most people then move on. But what's really important for us is to build an engaged community. And that's when conclusions come in. And so the first step is, okay, I've made a contribution, but the second one is, do I want to stay with this organization for the long term? And so at that point in time is when we start to convert people from one-time donors to long-time supporters through data um, so that they are then equipped as the storyteller. So you know, I, I have a ton of people coming to me, uh, I guess, two years ago, once we were about three or four years in, saying, I have this big idea. I want to con you know, create something of meaning and merit, but I don't know where to start, and I'm not famous, I'm not wealthy. Uh, I'm not, quote, influential in society, and so I, I don't know how I do it, but you, you started with $25 and you weren't famous or wealthy. Uh, your friends clearly had no money either, so um, how did you do it? And that's what led me to write this book. And in writing the book, I, I, I just made a conscious decision that I was both going to share stories, 
um, that gave people, I, I would say, the emotional resonance to believe in themselves and believe in this organization. But then I would also provide them with the tangible steps, almost the data points, the, the guideposts to live their own extraordinary journey as well. One of the things that you talk about is the importance of, as you say, seeking out the impossible, keeping that impossible yeah. goal out there. How do you keep that energy alive in an organization once it starts to have success and it is essentially replicating itself? Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, I mean, the best way that I can probably explain that is, is referencing a couple points in the book. So the way that the book was organized, um, this book, The Promise of a Pencil, uh, is into 30 short chapters. Uh, every chapter is titled with a mantra, and those mantras are those guiding steps to live a life of both success and significance. So the, the, the first thing that I would point to is one of the chapters, which is called Find the Impossible One. And that's a chapter about um, how we built our early team. Because uh, everyone was a volunteer. Everyone was doing this on the side of their job. But what we uh, really rallied around was a sense of being an underdog, that people were saying to us, this is going to be impossible. There's no way you'll be able to build one school. Okay, you built one. There's no way you'll be able to build 10. Ah, you got 10. No way you'll be able to get to 100. And I find that in general, people, uh, just as, as natural um, individuals, we root for the underdog, and we even want to be a part of their underdog story. It's why when the NCAA tournament happens, uh, you know, the March Madness that just occurred, no one gets excited for a Final Four that's all you know, number one seeds. We want to see the number seven seed beat the number two seed. And so in, in creating the early team, I think it's really essential to create an underdog sense, which is why one of the chapters is titled Find the Impossible One. But the third to last chapter is called Listen to Your Echoes. And that, that I think, best answers your question about how do you keep the momentum sustained. Because the truth is, as a leader, your job is not to always be the storyteller. Your job is to empower the lieutenant, the torchbearers, to become the storytellers themselves. And so... In that chapter, I listen to your echoes. I talk about the idea that you know, the, the original founder or leader or entrepreneur, whatever it might be, they might be the first version or iteration of that story, but your job then actually becomes uh, a, as a listener. Your job is no longer to be the pure speaker, but you have to listen to the way that others are then crafting that message themselves in their own lives and sharing it forward with others. And that I define as an echo, because if you think about it, an echo, is really just the original voice coming back, but it's it's a slight um, modification. It sounds a bit different. And so your job is to listen to the echoes and then help those people become the storytellers themselves. Talk a little bit about where most organizations go wrong in this process. Well, I think there's a lot of things that a lot of organizations um, lead, them, lead them to kind of go astray. And, and I'll also say that you know, I'm new at this as well. I've only been doing it for five years, and I started when I was 25, so I'm relatively young. And so I, I would never claim to be a pure expert on this. I'm sure there's people with far more experience than me. But from what I've seen, the, the place where organizations go wrong is first and foremost when one individual assumes that they are irreplaceable and that they don't, don't try to work themselves out of a job. So because I worked at Bain beforehand, I got this incredible training. And the thing that I learned most from Bain was first and foremost creation of a fantastic culture inside of a company that motivates and inspires and, and galvanizes people to support one another. But the second thing was that at Bain, they understand that they have high turnover. It's consulting. People go in and out of the company. They work in industries and they come back. And so their, their uh, kind of ethos as a company 
is that every individual should constantly be training somebody else to do your job just as well as you can do it. And in doing so, it's actually not a threat to you. Uh, what it allows you to do is elevate your position and work on the next higher level issue. And so I think a lot of companies go astray when uh, they start to grow quickly and one person assumes that no one else can do things as well as they can instead of investing in their team and their infrastructure and ultimately their supporters to take on the job that they were once doing. Uh, that, that's a really big thing in my mind is, is kind of building out that infrastructure and investing in your team. And then the second one is um, when they realize what they're good at and what got them to that point, and they only focus on that one capability. Uh, I think it's essential to constantly innovate and to understand where the world is going and try and move, um, to, not to where the kind of point of the, the Wayne Gretzky quote, but don't go where the puck is, go where it's going. And finally, talk a little bit about the work that you're actually doing, identifying the high-need villages that need these schools, building the schools, and what's really being accomplished. Sure. So we have uh, five core programs. So the first one is school building. Um, that's working with communities in uh, four countries, historically three, that we focus on now. So uh, Ghana, Guatemala, Laos, and we previously have also worked in Nicaragua. We have about 20 schools there that we continue to support. Uh, and so we identify high-need communities, but not just high-need, those that also um, will have high rates of success. So we demonstrate that through uh, measures of sustainability, of impact, of cost efficiency. Uh, but the most important thing is that communities put in 20% of the funding themselves, uh, that they actually put in the, the, the labor, because um, they often don't have the, the money. These are uh, in rural countryside, families making 300 to $500 a year. And so they make up their contribution by physically building the schools. Um, and so the, the school building is the first part. The second part is teacher training. We want to make sure that there's really high-quality teachers in the classroom. So we have a teacher training program. The third one is scholarship. So once students complete our primary schools, making sure that they have an opportunity to go onwards uh, towards secondary school. So we have a scholarship program. It's only $25,000 for us to build the school. Uh, $10,000 a classroom on average, but uh, anyone for $25,000 can build a full school through our website. Um, then they can dedicate the school on the plaque to uh, a loved one, a family member themselves, their company, um, their university, whatever it might be. And then if they fund a full school, we take them on a trip on the ground to actually see the school in action. Um, then the teacher training is $500 for a teacher. It's $250 uh, for the scholarship. And then we, the fourth and fifth are... Um, uh, sanitation and hygiene and health uh, training, and then the fifth is the one I'm most excited about, which is what we're calling our innovation pilots. And that's really testing out the future of new technology and new teaching methods in the classroom. So everything from e-readers in classrooms in Ghana to long-distance radio in rural Guatemala to using 3D printers in Laos to produce literacy toolkits. Adam Braun, the book is The Promise of a Pencil, How an Ordinary Person Can Create Extraordinary Change. Adam, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. My pleasure. And for anyone that's listening, all proceeds from the book go um, directly into supporting uh, the mission of Pencils of Promise. So I really hope people pick it up and enjoy the read. Sounds great. Adam Braun, The Promise of a Pencil. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.